So I've got a lot of different Christian traditions bottled up in me. As a free Methodist, I've got a bend for social justice. As a Methodist, I've got this longing to know the scriptures more deeply. As a charismatic Pentecostal, I'm eager to see the Holy Spirit at work in front of me. And as a Christian mystic, I'm awkwardly passionate about the love of God. I say awkward because the way that I talk about the love of God can almost sound romantic. Just like it often did for the Christian mystics and, and saints of old. I long for more of Him. My heart yearns for Him. I, I want to pursue Him and be pursued by Him. I want to be held by Him and I desire more of Him. I, I want greater intimacy with Him. I sing songs about dancing with Him and looking into His eyes and being known by Him. Just to further evidence my awkwardness, I even did a study on the Song of Solomon this past year to try to deduce how much of the romance found there was applicable to our spiritual love and hunger for God. I had heard mixed ideas about Solomon's poem being about the love between two lovers and about the love of God for his church. So I studied it on a deeper level because if it could give me more passion for Jesus, I wanted it to do so. I didn't quite realize how uncomfortable my spiritual romanticism, uh, my Christian mysticism, was for some people until a man once voiced his disinterest in my romantic language for God. Uh, to him it seemed my expressions took on an inappropriate nature, uh, the kind of nature I never meant for my words to take on. I was never trying to paint perverse pictures for anyone with my expressions. It's it's just that words fall short for me when it comes to trying to express my desire for God. And I've found the words of romance to somewhat be able to fill that gap. That seems pretty natural to me because there are a few things more radical in life than romantic love. Love shifts an entire life to focus and commit in its direction. Uh, love makes extravagant decisions and commitments. Love sacrifices self for the good of another. Uh, love finds all it desires in the presence of the other. Uh, love feels empty and pained when distance comes into relationship. Love knows that there are greater intimacies still to be found. Love is knowing and being known. And personally, I want to find all these features of love in God. So you have to forgive me if my mystical language is off-putting, but for me it's entirely appropriate. For, for I see human marriage not as an analogy of our relationship with Jesus, but as a signpost. In other words, I don't think my relationship with God is like my marriage to Jody. I think all of the goodness and love and romance and passion and desire and yearning and self-sacrifice and forgiveness I find in my relationship with Jody is a foretaste of all the goodness and love and romance and passion and desire and yearning and self-sacrifice and forgiveness that I will one day experience on a much higher level when the fullness of God's presence comes. I see the experiences of my marriage to Jody as a foretaste of something much bigger that is coming. Because Jesus said that there would be no marriage or sex in the resurrection life that's coming. And, and when I stop and I think about that, I say, why is that? Why would God do away with such good, God-ordained and God-commanded ways of life? 
Did he mess up when he created sex and marriage and, and now it has to be done away with? No, of course not. It, it's not there. Sex and marriage are not there in the resurrection because it's no longer needed. Why? Well, for one, there's no more need for procreation at that point. But also for two, it's because the real thing has finally arrived. All of the intimacy and relationship that marriage and sex represent will one day be found in God. And again, I, I don't mean that in a perverse way. Deep down, for most of us, sex is ultimately about our desire to know and be known by another person. And not just solely about a chemical reaction. Hence Bruce Marshall's famous quote, the man who rings the bell at the brothel unconsciously does so seeking God. Sex is representative of our desire for intimacy. And, and part of the good news of resurrection life is that the fullness of that represented intimacy, it's coming. And all who follow God will in the end find the fullness of that intimacy. Isaiah boldly prophesied that over all the eunuchs that follow God. God told those who are unable to experience human intimacy on that level now that he would offer them greater intimacy later. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting covenant that shall not be cut off. The great lack of intimacy now will be answered with something much greater later. A name better than sons and daughters. They too will experience what the signpost of marriage points toward. Again, marriage is a foretaste of something greater that is coming. Just as our perishable bodies are a sign of the coming perfect resurrected body we will one day put on, so our human marriages are a signpost of the coming perfect marriage we will be united in. For Christ will come and marry his church and show us what a true faithful covenant really looks like. There's no getting around it. The Bible paints the church as a bride and Jesus as her husband. He is coming back to earth to marry her. This picture in Revelation 16 is clear. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Look, this wedding isn't a little deal. It's a massive part of the coming resurrected life, and the Bible has been prepping us for it for a long time. In Isaiah 25, Isaiah prophesied about a great feast that would come at the end of this age as God triumphantly defeats death. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah speaks of a celebration coming where God will establish a new superior covenant. 
The old covenant between Israel, the wife, and God, the husband, was broken by Israel in her obsessive and continual adultery. We meet God's broken wife in our last message on Revelation. Do you remember? Lady Israel was deeply lost in her madness. But this new covenant would be superior to the old. In the new covenant, God would resurrect his wife into a perfect woman, just as she longs to be resurrected in perfection. She will not be handed laws to follow God, but instead God will write his laws on her heart. Righteousness will be a part of the DNA of the resurrected body. She will not have to ask anyone what God is like. Jeremiah tells us that she herself will know what God is like. And, and by the way, Jeremiah's Hebrew word for know is a very loaded, intimate word throughout the Bible. One day, when we are all given resurrected bodies and are able to live perfectly, a process that is already beginning now as the Spirit works within us, we will be the most beautiful bride anyone has ever laid eyes on. The light of the Lady Church will far outshine the Lady Israel on her best days and completely drive away the darkness of Lady Babylon. Only one lady will be made perfect enough to carry on into the resurrected world, for she will be made new entirely. The church is a beautiful woman. And it's there in the new world that we will live with the epitome of faithfulness, Jesus himself. The one who was willing to die for an unfaithful wife who couldn't have cared less for him. He has returned for her and caught her gaze with his ridiculous, radical, self-sacrificial love. Jesus is excited about this upcoming wedding. He's excited about his relationship with you, for he spent quite a bit of time talking about this wedding. The Old Testament prophecies said just enough for us to think of this end times banquet as a, a great feast. But Jesus continually taught that the great feast the prophets were talking about was actually a wedding feast, and he was the groom. This theme comes up time and time again throughout Jesus' parables and throughout his teachings. And it even comes up in communion where he talks about the new covenant. What was the new covenant in Jeremiah's prophetic word? Well, it was connected to the coming end times banquet and related to God redeeming his wife. Yes, communion is a foretaste, a, a signpost of our coming marriage with Jesus. And after Jesus served his disciples with that signpost of communion, he told them he would not drink wine again till the kingdom of God had arrived. Yeah, Jesus set the signpost tradition of communion in place partially so that we'll think of the great marriage feast ahead of us. And he too will dwell on that marriage feast by not partaking of wine again until that marriage feast has arrived. When the signpost of communion meets the reality of the wedding feast itself. So yes, all of this being said, I am a bit of a hopeless romantic, even in my spirituality. For one day, all of the intimacies I know now will be dwarfed by the very definition of intimacy himself. All of my desire to know and be known will finally come to fruition, for I will know God. 
The Bible points us this direction with large, flashing, blinking signs. It's not something to be ashamed of or, or to think of perversely. It's a hope to latch on to, a celebration to plan and prepare for, a feast to indulge ourselves in. I mean, can you imagine not just being made perfect in body, but being made perfect in morality? That's a healing I've prayed for probably every day of my life. And one day, Jesus will answer my cry. For as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish washed clean of sin, no spots, no wrinkles, no blemishes. God's law established in our very being the ability to know God firsthand. I think it's possible that you further see our new righteousness evidenced in the following pages of Revelation. Because after this great wedding feast is mentioned, the War of Armageddon happens, which is where Satan will take an army of evil spirits and evil humans and try to overthrow God and take his throne. But Jesus ends this evil army simply with the judgments of his mouth. But the war at Armageddon isn't the end of all evil in Revelation. Rather than end Satan at Armageddon, God throws him in prison for a thousand years. And after a thousand years have passed, he's released and deceives a new army to follow him. But at this point, part of the resurrected life has already begun as at least the martyrs have entered into resurrection life on the earth and live with God in his holy city. Satan's new army surrounds that city on all sides, but the Bible shows he's no match. Fire just comes out of heaven and consumes this army like this great war wasn't even a challenge. If anything, Satan has just gathered up all evil for God and brought it to one place so God can cleanse the earth. This story in Revelation is one of the stranger stories that we come across. Uh, it's, it's difficult to fully understand what's going on. People stretch scriptures pretty far in order to try to make this story of these thousand years fit well with their theology. Look, to some extent, I think we'll just see what this phase of existence looks like when we get there. <laughs> but what's my point in bringing all of this up? My point is that in the original holy space of Eden, Satan entered the scene and deceived God's people into following him. In the war we just witnessed, Satan deceived all the nations into following him to attack the resurrected people, but none of the resurrected are recorded as joining Satan in that battle. Satan can't even seem to get into God's holy space to deceive them before he's just burned up. This almost feels to me like the Eden story being retold. Satan rises up against God's people by using deception, but this time, none of the resurrected Christians are recorded as being deceived. These resurrected Christians aren't as fickle as Israel. They're not even as fickle as Christians today who can follow God for several decades and then just suddenly turn their back on him in a moment because they didn't like something that happened in their life. Unlike God's people then and now, the new righteous and resurrected bride of Christ stands firm against Satan. He is not a threat to their morality 
or to their lives. Satan is not a threat and our perfected life is to come. We've had to go through actual hell in the book of Revelation to get to heaven. But all of our journey through martyrdom and pain and plagues and spiritual warfare and politics has finally paid off. Despite all the things that hell can throw at us, the promise of what we receive is literally beyond measure. Eternal life with a perfect church married to a perfect spouse. Eventually, the signposts will fade away. And one day, we'll look back at this time on earth and say, remember back when all we had to measure this moment with was our marriages? I mean, who would have thought the new world would be so unfathomably more than that? So as we wrap up, I, I pass along to you one more signpost. Uh, one of my favorite Catholic saints and mystics, Teresa of Avila. Uh, she took on a life of celibacy to pursue God. And in doing so, she seemed to find an intimacy with God that many could only dream of, a foretaste of resurrection intimacy. And perhaps her story can give us a closer glimpse of that which is ahead. In one of her most famous stories, she met an angel. Of that experience, she writes, In his hands I saw a long golden spear, and at the end of the iron tip, it seemed to, I seemed to see a point of fire. With this, he seemed to pierce my heart several times so that it penetrated to my entrails. When he drew it out, I thought he was drawing them out with it, and he left me completely afire with a great love for God. The pain was so sharp that it made me utter several moans, and so excessive was the sweetness caused me by this intense pain that one can never wish to lose it nor will one's soul be content with anything less than God. It is not bodily pain, but spiritual. Though the body has a share in it, indeed a great share, so sweet are the colloquies of, of love which pass between the soul and God that if anyone thinks that I am lying, I beseech God in his goodness to give him the same experience. I, for one, am open to receive. And if I don't now, then later I will.